Hello and welcome to Renegade Paradise, the official podcast of the Charleston, South Carolina chapter of the Democratic Socialists of America. We're an intersectional activist organization working to build a society and economy run by the working class, a society that democratically meets of the needs of the many rather than creating profits for the few. Renegade Paradise is a news, commentary, and educational platform based on socialist analysis from activists on the ground here in the Lowcountry. By sharing a socialist perspective and by lifting up the voices of our allies and comrades, we hope to create space for folks in this part of the country looking to deepen their understanding of leftist politics, but who may not know exactly where to start. Members of the Charleston Democratic Socialists of America come from a broad, diverse set of backgrounds and tendencies within the spectrum of the left. What unites us is one common goal, to build a different world, a better world. I'm your host for today's episode, CJ Bones. Thanks for listening. Today, we're going to follow up on our previous episode featuring Max Elbaum. Recently, Max was in Charleston to discuss his book, Revolution in the Air, at the Union Hall for ILA Local 1422 in downtown Charleston. Revolution in the Air primarily deals with the formation of the new communist movement in the United States in the 60s and 70s, and its subsequent decline in the 80s. It examines what organizations like DSA can learn from the legacies of Lenin, Mao, and Che, and from the various tendencies and organizations of the new communist movement at the time. A lifelong activist and writer, Max has been involved in peace and anti-racist movements since joining Students for a Democratic Society in Madison, Wisconsin in the 1960s. Throughout the 1970s and 80s, he participated in campaigns defending affirmative action and opposing military interventions in the Third World while writing extensively for the radical press and taking part in then-widespread efforts to construct a new U.S. revolutionary political party. In the 1990s, he was the editor of Crossroads, a magazine featuring dialogue and debate among socialists and radicals from different left political traditions. In 2001, he was among the founders of War Times, also known as Tiempo de Guerras, until 2006, a free bilingual imprint tabloid distributed nationwide, and until 2011, an online information and analysis project. He's currently one of the editors of Organizing Upgrade. What follows is conversations from Max's appearance, so I'm going to step away from the mic for a bit and let it play out. Fellow Charleston DSA member Nick will be back for our next episode to discuss Medicare for All and lay out some of the groundwork activists here in South Carolina have been doing to advance it. So we hope you enjoyed this discussion. It definitely um, offered up a lot of cool insights. I'm CJ Bones. This is Renegade Paradise. Thanks for listening. So uh, I, I, I'm going to try to talk for just about 20 minutes, and uh, I'm going to try to recreate... Uh, a little bit about what the worldview was of those of us who became radicals and revolutionaries in the late 60s. And then I'm going to talk a little bit about what my book covers, uh, especially a couple things about what I think we did right and what we did wrong. And then I'm going to wrap up with uh, some comments about the current moment in U.S. politics and what might be relevant from what is this history to today. Um, but I want to start, uh, I drove down here from Greensboro this morning, mm -hmm. and uh, I think people here all probably know that Sunday the 3rd was the 40th anniversary of the Greensboro Massacre. Mm -hmm. So in the Greensboro Massacre, uh, members of the Klan 
and the Nazi Party, organized and encouraged by members of the Greensboro Police Department, shot and killed five people who were members and supporters of the Communist Workers' Party, which was one of the groups in the section of the left that I wrote about. Um, Sandy Smith, Dr. Jim Waller, Bill Sampson, Cesar Kaus, and Dr. Michael Nathan. Uh, these were five of the seven people from the part of the movement that I wrote about who were assassinated in the course of their work uh, for social justice. The other two were two Filipino labor and international solidarity activists, also close friends and comrades of mine, Silmi Domingo and Jean Viernes, who were assassinated in the in their union hall, uh, Cannery Workers Local 37 in Seattle, Washington on June 1st, 1981. Um, and these seven people were representative of the kind of commitment and passion for justice uh, that characterized the movement that I wrote about. Uh, so for all the mistakes we made, uh, and the fact that we weren't able in the end to achieve our goals, uh, it was a movement that threw itself uh, with tremendous passion and energy into the fight for social justice. And that people here of all generations, but especially the younger people, are carrying on today. Uh, and the other thing I want to say about the Greensboro Massacre and the killing of Gene and Selmy is that uh, what it highlights is how uh, volatile and important the struggles against racism and war and foreign intervention are. These people were killed especially because that was the focal point of their activism. Of course, it was linked with labor reform, building unions, building the working class movement, but especially because they were fighters against racism and against U.S. wars abroad uh, was the reasons that they were, the central reason that they were murdered. Um, so something about the 1960s, you know, there, there's a lot of uh, romance and sanitation of what the 60s were all about. Uh, it was a very complicated and contradictory time, and one side of the generation's experience was there was a lot of pain and anger, and as we were talking about, it was a very emotional time, not all in a positive way. Uh, this was the era of assassinations. I remember where I was when John Kennedy was killed, Malcolm X was killed, Martin Luther King was killed, Robert Kennedy was killed, Fred Hampton, the chairman of the Black Panther Party in Chicago, who I heard speak when I was in college and we worked with the Panther Party, our SDS chapter worked with the Chicago and Milwaukee Pan Black Panthers. These people were all assassinated. Uh, it was the time of the violence against civil rights protesters, and it was the time of the Vietnam War. And one of the things that was different about the Vietnam War than today's wars, you know, today the U.S. doesn't, these wars don't end. They just sort of go on and on and on. The United States doesn't win. They're just quagmires. Uh, the other thing about the Vietnam War is, uh, is th today's wars is the killing is hidden. You don't see it on television every night. But that was not true in Vietnam. In v the Vietnam War was televised every night on the evening news. So I think between the time I was about 17 and my early 20s, I saw somebody killed on television every night. 
And I watched live when uh, that U.S. soldier had the lighter with the um, with the the film of him saying we had to burn down the village in order to save it. And you saw that kind of thing. And of course, we all knew somebody who was in Vietnam if we didn't go ourselves. And many of our friends came home uh, wounded, or they didn't come home at all, or they came home with PTSD. So it, it, it was not, you know, it was not all sex, drugs, and rock and roll and great protests. I mean, there was a lot of real pain. But at the same time, it was an incredibly optimistic and hopeful time. Uh, almost utopian, even with all that going on, because we had seen tremendous victories. Um, the Civil Rights Movement, we saw George Wallace and those other Southern governors standing there at the gates, segregation today, segregation tomorrow, segregation forever. And then 1964, the Civil Rights Act, 1965, the Voting Rights Act, both driven by the grassroots movements from below. Uh, Jim Crow was outlawed. And, it, and the black freedom movement didn't stop. It, was, it got more militant and more developed and spread more widely to the north as well as the south after those victories. So that was tremendous influence on us. And then Vietnam, the other side of all that killing and devastation was that the United States was losing, um, which uh, for us was an ideological earthquake because my generation was brought up to believe not just that the United States was a force for good in the world, but it was invincible. It had never lost a war. It just went from one victory to the next. And here a poor peasant country was defeating the most powerful military machine in the world. I mean, this was an ideological earthquake for my generation. And it meant things like uh, when Lyndon Johnson on March 31st, 1968, was driven from the presidency, said he wasn't gonna run, everybody who had protested, we all felt we had taken part in overturning the president of the United States. And not through assassination and that kind of thing, but through mass political action and collective action with other people. So that's very heady stuff for people in their late teens and early 20s. Um, so that's why we were so hopeful. Those kinds of experiences turned us to that. And then uh, probably the decisive thing which moved us, moved the largest number from protest and criticism and speaking truth to power to thinking about actual radical revolutionary change was the assassination of Martin Luther King. Uh, April 4th, 1968. This, this was what convinced so many of us that the system was really rotten, it couldn't be reformed, you needed to have revolutionary change of some kind. So what, did, what, what happened after that? Well, once you decide that you have to make that kind of change or you, you feel passionate about it, is you look around for some kind of strategy and some kind of organization to do it with other people. You don't just go off on your own, you try to figure out what to do. And of course, you're influenced by the state of the world and the state of what's happening at the time. You're, you can't help but be imprinted by what's going on around you. And this was the era of two, three, many Vietnams, of the liberation movements all across what today people talk about as the global south, but then we called the third world. Um, 
the Vietnamese, the Cubans, the Chinese Revolution, Amilcar Cabral and the African struggles, uh, the Tupamaros in Latin America. They, the whole third world was aflame with struggles against Western domination and white supremacy. And within the United States, especially the black freedom movement was the driving force, not, not just for the African-American rights, but it was the black freedom movement that broke the back of McCarthyism, that opened up the space for immigration reform, ending racial racist immigration quotas in 1965, gave birth to the new uh, women's movement, the LGBTQ movement, uh, and was really the power punch behind the anti-war movement, the rebellion of black GIs on the front lines in Vietnam, Martin Luther King's breaking silence speech. These were really important developments. So a whole section of us, that was the influence on us. So I'm just going to read one passage from my book about um, what we thought would be a workable approach. So. Inspired by the dynamic liberation movements that threatened to besiege Washington with two, three many Vietnams, that was Che Guevara's phrase, many decided that a third world-oriented version of Marxism was the key to building a powerful left here. Third world Marxism put opposition to racism and military interventionism front and center. It riveted attention on the intersection of economic exploitation and racial oppression pointing young activists toward the most disadvantaged sectors of the working class. It promised a break with Eurocentric models of social change and pointed a way toward building a multiracial movement out of a segregated U.S. left. Within the third world Marxist ranks, a determined contingent set out to build tight-knit cadre organizations based on Marxism-Leninism. We believed that new upsurges lay just ahead and it was urgent to prepare a united and militant vanguard so the revolutionary potential glimpsed in the 1960s could be realized the next time around. So that was the third world Marxist current. And I want to say every section of the left group out of the 60s upsurge. All the you know traditional communism, anarchism, revolutionary nationalism, radical feminism, Trotskyism, all, all sections of the left grew. But this particular section grew the fastest and had a plurality of the activists, especially a lot of the activists coming out of the freedom movements and communities of color. And it was a meshing together of a lot of the white students like me coming out of SDS and people who had come out of the Panther Party, had come out of SNCC, come out of the Third World Women's Alliance, come out of the Chicano movement, the La Raza Unido Party, the Puerto Rican movement, the new Asian American movement. It sort of meshed together into this new communist thing. Um, my book is a history of that particular trend and why it achieved a certain dynamism in the early 1970s. It goes through the different work of its component organizations that work in the labor movement, the women's movement, international solidarity work. It goes through the theoretical positions they had. It goes through the disputes that prevented them from ever uniting into one party. It was fragmented, even though we all were part of a sort of loose trend. We never were able to unite. 
It talks about the political culture of the movement, what we, what our sort of life in the movement was like, and it discusses the ways that those organizations were, and unfortunately were not very democratic in terms of their participation. Um, so I, we could spend a week going through all those particulars. I'm not going to try to do that because you will all fall asleep. Um, if you want to go into that deep dive, that's why people write books. You know, I wrote a book <laughs> and I do that. But um, what I am going to try to do is I'm going to make one or two points about what our positives and our negatives were. So uh, the most costly mistake we made uh, was that we misassessed the historical moment that we were in. And so we ended up building organizations and having a political program that was out of touch with the key constituencies that we wanted to work with. So it, it, it wasn't, it, it, we had come of age in a period of incredible fast change and mass motion. So we, we were young, we were young and stupid. And we overgeneralized from that experience. And we weren't the first Marxists to think that the final conflict was coming pretty soon. We underestimated the resilience of our opponents and we overestimated our own strength. So what we thought was that the 60s had been this global upsurge. There was going to be a little bit of an ebb because mass movements don't go in straight lines. And then there's going to be another upsurge and it's going to be further to the left and it's going to involve even deeper sections of the working class and it's going to be more united than the movements of the 60s and if we have a good revolutionary leadership we can move it really forward now that was plausible from about 1968 until the early 70s but by the early 70s it started to events started to happen that made it clear that's not the way history was going to go the ruling class regrouped and a very sophisticated campaign of taking advantage of racism, anti-feminism, homophobia, demonization of different countries around the world during the energy crisis of 1974, uh, demonized the Arab world, uh, division, fostering divisions. So the right wing started to gain its backlash initiative. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, we had assumed that because the 60s, the electoral arena had been blocked and so many people took to the streets in demonstrations and rejected electoral ideas, we, we thought that was a permanent state of affairs and that our electoral politics were already obsolete. But the masses of people didn't think that. Once the Vietnam War was over and Jim Crow was outlawed, even though structural racism still existed, people you know, fought in the electoral arena. People wanted to defend those gains and got into elections, got into policies, built different kinds of organizations. And here we were going off in this direction. Also, our organizations were very tight-knit and demanded a credible amount of um, discipline. And you had to agree with a whole bunch of things that were maybe not completely relevant to the United States in 1973, like what was the difference between Stalin and Trotsky in 1924. 
Well, that's an interesting point, and I don't <laughs> mind debating that once in a while, but it's not exactly clear what that has to do with. And we, you know, we, people were in a defensive frame of mind. Let's defend the gains we've made and see what we can do with it. Uh, for the first time after the Voting Rights Act, all kinds of people of color could run for office and make a difference in that, and we were sort of off in the field. So we misassessed that moment. And that also had to do with a, what I call in the book a quest for orthodoxy. Uh, we viewed uh, Marxism-Leninism as some kind of omniscient science that had the truth. And, you know, that was overblown, to say the least. I like to say that we've learned something since, that what is the definition of Marxism-Leninism as a science? It is a science that allows you to predict the past. <laughs> so, uh, we got it a little bit dogmatic there. So this was a problem, and it, it was interrelated. It meant, among other things, and I we might want to talk about this in detail, that we took little differences and we didn't see them in a good sense of proportion. So you're going to have differences in politics. And some of the things we fought over, if we really were on the verge of a revolution, might have been important. But in the United States in 1973 or 76, they were not important. You could work together with those differences. We weren't on the verge of storming the Winter Palace or taking the White House. So you could leave off a certain discussion of certain issues about what an insurrection would look like. It was not a splitting issue. So these kinds of things were infected by our misassessing the historical moment. And uh, that was a, that, that led to a whole series of other, it was interconnected with other mistakes. Uh, I want to say something about um, one of the strengths of our movement. So uh, this was a movement that more than anything else was shaped by the civil rights movement, the black power movement, and the anti-race movements generally. And that was the lodestar of this movement in the United States. Uh, a lot of the leadership came out of that, and those of us who were influenced, who, uh, who were not in the black freedom movement, were influenced by that. Um, and we, you know, we, we studied W.E.B. Du Bois and other things about the history of the United States and got some appreciation for the role that racial slavery had played in building up U.S. capitalism and that, that particular role in the way that race divides the working class and, and uh, is the main, the white supremacy prevents a united working class movement from moving forward and how the black freedom movement in many periods has opened up democratic space for everybody. Um, and um, that, that, was, that was a, you know, uh, today that's become mainstream. There's all these new academic books about it. There's the half that's never been told by uh, Baptist. There's the Empire of Cotton, and the you know, and the New York Times ran the 1619 Project uh, with all these articles about the shadow of slavery still affecting today's politics. It's mind-boggling because even in the 1960s, that was just a narrow swath of the left was talking about that and in the black liberation movement. Outside of that, that was not in the broader culture. And now it's sort of 
out there. And that, that was a strong point of the movement, and it meant that we, we um, in, a, in a practical sense, that it meant we engaged in important struggles of that period, like those people who were shot in Greensboro, people taking up the fights around defense affirmative action, work against the Klan, uh, got involved in electoral politics in Jesse Jackson's coalition, Harold Washington in Chicago, and tried to, many projects trying to build Black Latino Unity, for example, today there's, there's an organization called Baji, the Black Alliance for Just Immigration, which talks a lot about the Im immigrants from Haiti and from the Caribbean, but especially this project is building unity between blacks, Latinos, Asians, and whites around the immigration issue, takes people to the border, and tries to build that sort of unity across all these different barriers and so on. So people from the new communist movement threw themselves into that. And a lot of the people, even once the organizations tended to collapse at the end of the 80s, remained key leaders and thinkers around the anti-racist movements and so on. Um, at, the, uh, at the National Women's Studies Association conference this weekend, uh, next two, 10 days from now, one of the sessions is going to be the 50th year since Fran Beal, who was the leader of the Black Women's Caucus and then the Third World Women's Alliance, published an article called Double Jeopardy, to be black and female, in at all the anthologies. And she's going to be honored at that, um, at that conference with, with the session uh, by a, a range of younger people on the panel to talk about what, what an impact that that had. And Fran was an activist in the new communist movement as she moved through that period. She's, she's, still, she's, still, she's still kicking. <laughs> um, anyway, so that was some of the strength, you know, and, and, and uh, here we are on that. And, and uh, there, there are, I think, uh, for DSA, uh, which is, a, an, a, a, in some ways, is very much a counterpart of the SDS and the people who want to fight back and who are moving together to, to try to figure out how do you orient and who do you who do you stress your coalition work with and how do you build the organization and get some roots that will you'll have some staying power you know through the ups and downs that movements have which sections of labor do you want to work in and, you know the terrain is very different now but um so i'm going to just say something about now and then we can just kick it around a little bit so so we've had this 40, 50 year backlash, and I think that um, it's intensified. And I think there's two reasons why it's intensified. Um, one of them is that the 2008 financial crisis, which turned global, uh, indicated that the model of capitalism that got brought in in the late early 70s that we used to call Reaganism in the early 80s but now gets called neoliberalism had exhausted its dynamism. And of course the burden got shifted downward to the working class, the middle classes and so on. Everybody's suffering more hardship. And so there's a lot more anxiety in, in the country. And there's a moment where people want to do something in protest. But the other thing that's going on is it's not just the left that has that and sees that happening. 
there's a right-wing trend that's been built up over all these years of backlash where racism, anti-feminism, misogyny has been fanned, and the idea that the real problems is immigrants, it's people who are, you know, taking your jobs, it's the uh, people around the world who are against, you know, America and all that. And you get this backlash, which Donald Trump very took advantage of in in a very demagogic way, but had a narrative that appealed to people, which was that there are, appealed to some people, let's say, uh, there's an elite that's coddling the good-for-nothing minorities and the uppity women, and that's what's destroying hard-working Christian white America, and that kind of narrative. Now, I think it's a myth that this is a white worker-driven project. There are white workers who've been pulled into this, but the main driving force of this project are right-wing billionaires, the fossil fuel industry, and the military-industrial complex. And why are they driving this? Because they know that their program is unpopular with the majority. Climate change denialism is now very unpopular, especially people under 25. There's articles about the Republican Party saying, hey, we got to get out of this because all the young voters, they don't buy this anymore. The military-industrial complex, because wars are out of style. All, every sector, even on the right wing, is like, these wars, you know, this is Trump talking about endless wars. These wars never get anywhere. So, and the economics of giving everything to the 1% while everybody starts student debt, no health care, attacks on labor. This is a very unpopular program. And the only way to keep that program is if you have minority rule, if you can defy the will of the majority. And that's what this program is. Voter suppression, gerrymandering, keeping the electoral college, and all these different ways of scapegoating people to an institute uh, what different people have used different terms, a racialized authoritarian state, a new Jim Crow, some kind of neo-fascism. I mean, people use different words for it, but it's basically to ensure that there's a coalition strong enough, led by these right-wing fossil fuel, billionaires, military-industrial complex, to impose its will on the majority. Okay, that's a very serious threat. The good news is that the majority of people are not going for this. Uh, the, there's an incredibly broad anti-Trump motion, and it extends all the way from some corporate Democrats, who were probably not the favorite of those of us in this room, all the way through the Bernie Sanders campaign, the new Me Too movement, the environmental movement, and many parts of the left. But any broad movement has contradictory interests in it. Uh, the more conservative part of the anti-Trump coalition is more better resourced, but we have the dynamism. This is what's driving it. Everybody says, you know, Bernie's campaign has set the tone for all of these discussions. So we're driving this process. And the social justice wing of the anti-Trump coalition 
has a lot of initiative. And right now it's fighting in the primaries and through direct action to have the maximum influence, to have a candidate that we like carry the nomination and all of that. And then we'll surge into the general election. And the idea, the, the best case scenario is that if we beat Trump, the progressives have a foothold in power that we did not have and we don't stop. We put two million people on the street, January 20th, 2021, no matter who elected president, and we keep pushing. Because even if Bernie's elected a candidate that we like and is sympathetic to us, you can't get anything done. You can't rely on even your friends. It doesn't mean they're your enemies. And there are people now who we might think are our enemies, who in a very intense struggle may become our friends but you still have to push. Um, and I think that's the best case scenario. And uh, it's very encouraging to see so many uh, new generation people in DSA and in other forms uh, of social justice activism who are taking up this banner. Um, so I'm very blessed because I get another chance. Uh, I didn't know that I was going to live to see another flow that looks reminded me of the 1960s, and here it is. So, uh, but my job is different now. My, my job is not to be on the front lines. The job of the 70-year-olds <laughs> is to share what we went through like this, and uh, you people, you younger people, will take what you think is valuable, you'll leave the rest, and we get in behind you. And you know, let's let's give them help. Mm -hmm. All right. Stand up, all victims of oppression, for the tyrants fear your might. Don't cling so hard to your possessions, for you have nothing. Yeah.